All right. Hey, this is Jose Gallison on No Way Jose uh, on the Liberty Movement YouTube channel. Today I have with me Vin Armani. Uh, I think he's got really he's, lately he's been someone's been resonating with me big time. And uh, I think he's an important message for all of us. But uh, I kind of don't want to jump the gun and go into that message. I kind of want to set a stage. One thing that Vin brought up in a, in a thing with Pete Quinones, a podcast with him the other day, uh, earlier this week, is that sometimes to receive a message, you kind of have to set the stage is kind of how I read it. And um, like, for example, to, to put it in perspective for my life, for, like, for me to make that jump from anarchism to anarchism, it took Dave Smith uh, constantly going on about anatomy of the state. And so it was kind of like that magic of the personality that kind of got me into the actually finally reading it and then made, put me over the fence there. And then with my jump from anarchism to agorism, it was Pete Quinones. It's almost like even with every logical thing, there's always like this magic behind it that kind of gets you there. And so what I want to do is I kind of want to set the magic within, you know, so you guys can get kind of get to know them. Because for me, and it'll be kind of new for me, too, because I never really followed. I know you're well known for gigolos. And uh, and stuff like that. I never really followed all that. I know every now and then I'd find some funny clips on the soup, you know, but it never was you. <laughs> uh, that was my extent of gigolos. <laughs> I don't remember. There was some meathead with uh, with blonde tips that they would always had funny clips. <laughs> yeah, brains. That's my, that's my buddy. I love him. Oh, he was hilarious. I mean, I always was kind of like, I think I want to watch this just for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, with that, yeah. Um, <laughs> that kind of threw me off. Uh, you want to go ahead and give a quick intro of, for yourself to the audience. Obviously, we're doing you, but you know, just kind of just a quick breakdown of who you are and what you're about, and you know, kind of maybe quick plugs, kind of deal. Not full on plugs, but you know what I mean. Just a quick intro of yourself before we get into it. Sure, sure. So, um, my I guess my educational, formal educational background is in philosophy, but uh, my father was a, a tech entrepreneur and my mother a school teacher. So uh, I was really around technology from a very early age. My professional background is now about 20 years, maybe more, uh, but definitely uh, two decades as a, a tech entrepreneur and software developer. And then with the little stint, as you say, as a uh, on TV, which was an adventure. And during that time as a straight male, escort so it's a jugalos is a reality show that's about the agency that i worked for and uh so that was that was a bit of an adventure i'm somebody who's always been very interested in psychology sociology biology and mysticism religion and it all sort of came together in terms of this exploration that was that almost decade-long adventure that, that uh, a lot of people got to follow along, at least some of the, the, the funniest parts on TV. <laughs> and uh, since, since that ended in 2016, I started a family, basically retired from that business, and picked the software development back up professionally, specifically with uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which I had been involved in since 2012. That's when I got my first uh, Bitcoin and started developing in 2014. I, I mean, it was always something I was doing on the side, but kind of being on TV, it was an opportunity for me to explore some other stuff. I mean, I've, I've also been around the entertainment industry since I was a kid as a, a DJ and producer, a nightclub promoter. And um, so, you know, that was for, for many years, that was how I made my income. And 
yeah, since that time, I mean, I, I, I've always been sort of anti-authoritarian, I guess you could say, but in my early twenties, uh, I'm 42. And in my early twenties was when the Iraq war situation was going on. And I was really involved in the protest movement in LA. I was living in LA at that time. And in, in that way, got involved really in like the political left. So like the green, I was a member of the green party. I was actually the fundraising director for the Los Angeles County greens, believe it or not. Um, because that was the anti-war side of things, um, you know, and uh, Pacifica, KPFK, and sort of the people that swirled around that in LA. I mean, the left has really become something very, very different now. That was like an anti, that was the anti-authoritarian anarchist side of things. There really wasn't too much of that on the right. Uh, I think, you know, even the idea that there would be anarchists on the right was it's just kind of unheard of. Uh, you know, you, you had libertarians, but they were always for some sort of government, whether it was small or not. So I've always had that bent. And then even more so when I was in the the world of sex work and around these people and colleagues. And I mean, not only was it my friends and my business colleagues, but also my, you know, the long-term relationships that I was in where it was with high-end escorts. And the people that I hung out with was you know, male and female escorts. And that was the the friends that I was around, but also the, the people in Vegas, the life in Vegas is very gray market in a lot of different ways from the hosts to the strippers, to the drug dealers and pimps and whatever, right. And the, you know, illegal gambling here and there and whatnot. It's, it's, uh, it's an established industry there. And so I, I got to see that you could do a lot of things outside of state regulation and that there was a lot of gray area for for people to move economically. And I was very successful in that regard. I, I see Bitcoin as an extension of that. So, you know, I, I really became more versed. I had a lot of traveling during that time that I did. And, and it was mostly political philosophy that I was getting into, trying to sort of see where I was at and settled on, you know, I mean, before he became a, a Trumpist and now uh, uh, deplatformed, I think I, like a lot of people, uh, my true red pill, I would say, is probably Stefan Molyneux, uh, particularly, you know, his books, though, before before the whole Trump thing and all of that was where I was like, wow, this dude is really making a great argument against the state and for something else. And that resonated with me. And, uh, you know, so when the show was over, I started being a little more public about my libertarian views, since that's really not something you want to do if you're in Hollywood, if you want to keep your job. So when they were like, uh, well, there's no more seasons of this, I was like, okay, I feel a little more free to be able to discuss, you know, what I feel politically and not touch that third rail. And through that, I, you know, the opportunities came up for me to do, I, I, Activist Post reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to do a podcast, which I did for, I don't know, 90, 90 weeks, 90 episodes called The Vin Armani Show, which sort of, I, I guess, was my opportunity to introduce myself to a lot of people in the space, a lot of the thought leaders, and, um, you know, uh, wrote a, a book in 2017 called Self-Ownership that's kind of an exploration of, of that concept, which isn't well explored in libertarian thought. You, you'd think it would be, but it really actually isn't when you look at it. And yeah, um, yeah since then, it's, it's really been about Bitcoin. In April, when all of this stuff started happening with the pandemic, I moved my family to Saipan. So that's where I am right now. Um, we're, we've got a windy day here today. So that's why it may look like I'm being blown around a little bit. Um, 
and we've been here since April. And I, I yeah, that's that's about it, man. I've just been I've just been trying to both through my kind of software work with Bitcoin, my newsletter and and our private group, which is called Counter Markets, which is agorists newsletter. It's like the only one out there. We're all we're going on four years now. It doesn't that seems crazy to me. Uh, we're about to hit our four year anniversary. But, you know, writing for that and uh, trying to communicate the message and, and help people understand what's coming. And then for those people who are willing to sort of who, who want to thrive and who want to really survive well in this, now is the time. Like in terms of, you know, being an agorist, which is really taking action. Now is the time for that. Now is the time, you know, I mean, we see the economy itself being shut down by government regulations and the white market being squeezed into nothing. So gray market is, is coming and this is what we've been waiting for. So that's, I mean, that's pretty much where I'm at right now. Yeah, there'll be ones, there'll be those that uh, thrive in like a collapse or, you know, authoritarian type structure. Uh, I do want to bring it back. Uh, this kind of throws off my tr the train of thought I'm trying to go down here. But I did want to mention, though, that, that uh, I never got around to reading your book. I want to. It's just I'm, I know you only do it in crypto and I'm, gonna, I'm a tech idiot. So I need to I still need to figure that out. But I really have like that almost got me into crypto just to read that book because I remember hearing you on Pete's show before. And like that did kind of like it is weird that like there aren't many libertarian thinkers who go down that road. And it's yeah. like you can bring everything back down to ownership. It did, it did like I did. I, that was my first time. I think I heard you and it really like was like, holy shit, that like really shifted my thinking. So I don't know. No, it just kind of seems to be you keep showing up in in, uh, in different forms of media and then always seem to fuck with my head a little bit. So. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. It was something that I had found. Um, there's a lot of talk about property rights, obviously, in the, mm. I guess what you would call right libertarian. I guess what, what people fall into AMCAP. Uh, I guess Konkin himself said that agorism is actually a, a left libertarian. I, I think right and left are completely different from what they were in the 70s. You mm. know, uh, even, you know, Christopher Hitchens used to call him. So you look at his old interviews and he would say he was part of the, the left. But I think by the time he died, <laughs> he was very much associated with the right. Let's just put it like that. Although had his views changed, probably not very much. Um, but there's a lot of talk about property rights. But when you look at definitions, and this is part of the software developer in me, but it's also part of the agorist in me, because part of being a good agorist is you're, you're going to have to get good at uh, definitions, because when you're an agorist should know the law better than the people enforcing the law. That's that should be your you should know the local laws, because otherwise, how do you know what the gray area is? How do you know what the gray market is? But the gray market is going to be that thing that they didn't really get around to defining that you could, you know, uh, that would hold up in court for you. So so you need to be a little bit of a lawyer. And so when I went in and whenever you're writing a philosophical proof, you need to make some definitions. And so it's just like it's they're like, ah, define property. So whenever Mises talks about it, whenever Rothbard talks about it, any of them, it's like that which is owned and that which, and that which the owner can dispose is free to dispose of and it's like well what does own mean it's circular <laughs> it's like yeah. well if you're not going to define own and you're going to base your entire i mean so so mises writes this giant book socialism right which is which is reliant upon talking about property and property rights you can't talk about socialism 
and you can't critique it unless you're going to talk about property. Right. And that's literally yeah. what he does. Like in the first three pages, he goes property uh, that which is owned, which the owner can't dispose of. Never yeah. deals with it again. Yeah. Never owned that which is property. <laughs> that which is property. Right? And so it's like, wow. OK. Ooh, somebody needs to deal with this. And so that's really what self-ownership the book is about. The that's why the subtitle is um, The Foundation of Property and Morality. And basically, as I explored it, to explore what is a definition, a workable definition of ownership that can start from first principles, right? So the entire book draws from first principles. What is a workable, basically the, the, the concept of ownership or a definition of ownership that even a communist could agree with, right? So it's like, we may disagree on whether it's legitimate, but we can at least agree on what it means to own something we can disagree on whether or not i can own it right of whether it's legitimate for me to own it and so from there the the book is a is basically an exploration what it became was it became an exploration of the idea that that which we call morality is tied into that which we call property and that the idea of these concepts is these are concepts that are necessary so that we can actually live together in some semblance of peace because the, the nat nature has a mechanism for settling intraspecies violence that or intraspecies conflicts over property. That is uh, between your own species. So that's why deer have antlers. That's why rams have horns, right? Those ram horns are for nothing else but fighting other rams. And what they're fighting over is to decide, to make a decision. Whose property is this? Who owns this? This area, the, the right to mate with the females in this area, that's what they're dealing with. And it's like, okay, that's a big waste of time. And for a social creature that is also a territorial creature, right? there's not a lot of those. So we're a social creature that also has our individual territory. We're, we're good with the group territory, but we also have our individual stuff, which is weird for, so like, you don't really see that in mass with something like wolves, you know, dog packs or something like that. They're having to like sleep on top of each other. They may fight over food in the, in the moment, but they won't fight over like, this is my little area of the thing. You know, maybe a dog might get a little area, but we can expand it way out, you know? And so we came up with all of these concepts because the alternative and what is always there, if, if we don't have a system of morality and a system of property, is violence. And so, for instance, when, you ha when you're operating as an outlaw, that's what you've got. So if you're a drug dealer, you know, and there's a dispute, you can't take it to a court. You can't appeal to morality. You can't appeal to property rights. Somebody comes to steal from you. It's, it's the Rams again. He says that's his. You say it's mine. You're gonna have to sh shoot it. One of you is gonna have to die for it or give up and walk away. And yeah. so, right? And so yeah. over time, the entire reason that we develop these laws, the entire purpose of a moral code and a property code is peace. Because 
over time, those societies that were able to have less violence, fundamentally, just they were able to have less of a chance of losing valuable male members in particular, right? More cooperation among males, which meant that you could stop the outgroup from raiding you. Um, and, and that they were able to also accumulate more property that they could pass down through the generations because the generations would respect it. So you're able to have this mass accumulation of property, which creates more abundance. So you end up outcompeting the groups that couldn't do it. And so this, so the self-ownership is an exploration of that concept, but it takes it all the way back to like, what are we behaving like? What is it that we're behaving? And, and you start to see this almost spiritual or religious, the underpinnings of that as well. So it was very interesting. It was a very interesting process and exploration for me. People enjoy the book a lot. But um, yeah, that's, that's basically what it was. And it was something that I had not seen addressed in the, the, I guess, the sort of space that we're in, which I would say is would be what, right anarchism? And mm -hmm. AMCAP, whatever it is. That's liberty minded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean <laughs> liberty minded, but I would say liberty without excuses. Mm -hmm. so it's like while we may recognize that the state is there, it's we don't see it as a necessary evil. I think we see it as a temporary evil. So it's so we we would prefer not to have it, but what are you gonna have as a in in the stead of the state? You're gonna have to have some organizing principle. And so you know, it's it's my contribution. The book is my contribution to, to that line of thought. And the thing I love about the concept of that book, too, is because it's like this glaringly obvious blank spot that never really got its due. And it's like really should be step one of any sort of intellectual pursuit is defining your terms, because otherwise you just end up talking past yourself. And honestly, that's like probably the majority of, you know, intellectual debates are just people that didn't take the time to define their terms and are, you know, not on the same page kind of deal when it comes to at least to that, you know? Agreed. So, yeah. But uh, let's, uh, let's get into it. I want to start off with, I literally want to go sequentially with your life. And uh, I kind of broken it down in a certain way. I want to know, first off, obviously where you were born and where you were like, where you, where you were born and when you were born kind of deal. I mean, you told me you were 42, but uh, you know, <laughs> we can start there and we'll get into it. So I was born in the late seventies in Washington, D.C. Okay. All right. Cool. Are, are in the in the heart of the in the? Oh, I forgot the what, what the uh, saying the the devil's nest or whatever. Belly of the beast. Belly of the beast. I couldn't think of it. Whatever. Uh, I'm tired. <laughs> I've had a lot of coffee. Right, um, right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then the next thing I want to know is what were your earliest memories? And the reason why is because I think these are things that really shape you. Because for me. Um, and I'm prepared to go personal. I mean, I, my name's a pseudonym and I've told people before that I'm not like fully, but I'm willing to go a little personal. And like some of my earliest memories were my mother being beat as a child. And for me, that kind of like shaped me to the man I am today and where strength has always been like a priority for me and being a protector, which I think has served me well as a father and a husband. And like, that's kind of always been in like a big thing for me. And like, I'll kind of go into it too. because I figure we can kind of mirror it back and forth, you know, kind of the, the phases of life, you know? And so like, that was for me, my earliest memories was that, and that kind of like shaped who I am today. And so I didn't know if you had something similar. I mean, if not, it's fine. Some people have perfectly happy lives and don't have really have much to speak of, but. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, I, I was definitely raised in a tumultuous household. I mean, when I was very, very young, my parents were, I mean, they would just, it, it was mostly like they were screaming at the top of their lungs. There was never any physical violence, thank God. Mm -hmm. But um, 
you know, it was a pretty, a pretty tense situation. And, um, my, they, my parents got divorced when I was, I think seven, something like that. Um, and, you know, I would say, I would say overall, I had a, I had a, uh, I, I would say a relatively like peaceful and, um, stimulating life, I guess I would, uh, early life, I guess I would say that. So, um, you know, time spent with my father, he was a real kind of a, kind of a mystic himself, uh, a very wise guy in his own way. He had suffered a lot of abuse as a child, uh, very, very serious. Uh, but he was, you know, su surprisingly, he, he made the decision to not carry that sort of, um, that uh, cycle forward, right? So he, you know, he was a spiritual guy, he very intellectual, uh, very forward thinking. I guess he would probably call himself a, a, a futurist. We would constantly talk about the future, big on sci-fi. And, uh, and, you know, my mother was a, a school teacher, very emotional uh, type of woman. And so, uh, you know, I, I think I got both sides very well. It was probably best that they weren't together uh, with one another. So I got them sort of separately. Um, but I was, you know, I was, uh, as a kid, sports was a huge part of my life, probably the biggest part of my life. And, um, yeah, sports, sports and tech were like the two things. And I, and, and those have continued through. I mean, I still play beach volleyball here on, at a, at a high level on a, a weekly basis. Um, and, uh, you know, and work out every day. And so that's, and, and obviously, I mean, people saw me on TV. I was like, that was my thirties was nothing but, uh, <laughs> was nothing but bodybuilding pretty much. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was my early life. I think that the, that those things definitely shaped me and, you know, maintaining athletic pursuits, maintaining intellectual pursuits. And, and that was, that was, yeah, that's what my youth consisted of for the most part, I would say. Okay. So, um, I want to peg in, you kind of, I think you touched on a little bit, but what was Vin like in those years pre like kind of you know probably in the 8 to 12 range because i think that's a transformative time like for me i went through a period of time where i kind of had a learning disability it was adhd and uh, i kind of learned to rise above it and then i went from being like the bottom of my class to being like the smartest motherfucker around and i went from and i kind of became like a mega nerd and that's something i kind of learned to resent later in life but for that period of time i was very socially awkward but super smart I mean, you seem to sound like you started off as a, as a jock as a younger age, but I don't know if that was true for that period of time or, or not so much. Probably more for that period of time than any other. I, I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I was always kind of recognized as being um, like, I guess, I guess smarter than average when I was, when I was in school. So there was, you know, like uh, gifted programs and honors programs or whatever. And I was always, I was always in those uh, as a kid, but yeah, eight to 12, especially, oh God, that was just, it was just all sports, you know, like, so it was, um, so at that time I was already playing water polo. I ended up playing water polo and swimming all the way. I, I'm from uh, San Bernardino, California, which is like desert. It's super hot. It gets into the hundreds. Um, and it's an area that particular area is known for just producing like amazing swimmers and water polo players, you know, on Olympic team and everything. So, um, 
I was playing with the same group of guys that I played with all the way through high school and the same coach from the age of nine. So, you know, he brought up this, this group of kids and, and then, of course, state championships and the whole nine, as you could imagine, uh, followed in the, the later high school years. But, um, yeah, so it was uh, water polo and swimming, baseball, football I was playing at that time. Um, yeah, man, that was, that was just that, – that's, that's what I remember of that time in my life was it was like school – Maybe hanging out with some friends, but just sports, nonstop sports. Okay. All right. Well, then moving on to Teenage Vin, because for me, that's kind of when I kind of developed into myself and started kind of, I don't know if that's when the testosterone hit or what. That's when I started becoming more of a jock. I got really big into lifting. I was like, you know, I was like, I was the 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 quintessential jock. Like, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. Like, not every sport I was top of the game, but I was always playing some sport. I was the strongest guy around, like. But and it was kind of a rejection of my younger self because I kind of found myself in there and kind of like kind of and almost like was ashamed of that like smart part of me. And instead of instead of pursuing mental strength, I went from pursuing physical strength since I saw that kind of like get me popularity, get me girls, that kind of stuff. So is there is there any sort of shift in you as a teenager or was it just more of the same? Oh, definitely. Big shit. So I would I could probably market to. Uh, you know, I could probably market to my my early experimentations with drugs. So it was probably there. There was sort of sort of combining into two of like um, getting a, a steady girlfriend, being able to drive around, but then like w starting out with weed, and then my buddies who were older than me and and uh seniors at the time when we first started hanging out and then seniors in high school same high school and then you know after after they had already even graduated they went to the local university and um so we were still hanging out when i was in high school and they were the ones who took me to um desert they started taking me to desert raves so the area that i'm from is basically it just it borders the it's in San Bernardino County and it just borders the, the Mojave Desert that's like on the way out to Vegas and so during that time this so this would have been um, basically early to to mid 90s the the group the sort of loose group that then sort of gathered together and became Burning Man was at that time a, a kind of a more loose community that was doing parties out in the desert. And so there was a, there was a, had been a quite an old tradition of um, warehouse parties, like break-in warehouse parties in Southern California, because there's just so many empty warehouses, at least there was during the, the late 80s and early 90s. And there was a big tradition of that uh, for a lot with house music and techno music. And then this group was, you know, your typical California kind of hippies, uh, but a bit of a younger generation. Some of them had experienced some of the things that were going on in India, like in Goa. And so there was like a, a psychedelic trance and sort of Goa trance movement. And, and it was sort of the electronic version of, and some of, some of the people who were out there was so it was those experiences when I was like 15, 16, you know, still in high school 
my, my parents were pretty lenient because I was pretty responsible. So I never really had a, I had a job since the age of 12. So I had my own money. Um, I never really, um, was really too late or too crazy out. So if I told them, ah, I'm going to be home at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, uh, I would be home at that time. And so, you know, my mom was always like, ah, you know, so long as you're doing that. And so long as I don't see you coming in here drunk or, or you're not driving drunk or whatever, it's cool. And, um, so yeah, so it was going out to those desert raves and experiencing, uh, you know, LSD and mushrooms and but also having these this sort of older generation of people who could explain and sort of walk me through what was going on and who viewed it in a more spiritual way and being exposed to that sort of granted some new age stuff uh, and then also at the time I discovered the internet so as I said my dad was a tech entrepreneur I got my first <laughs> PI computer when I was five years old. And um, then, you know, my grandmother, his mother, bought me a computer uh, when I was 15, one of the first Pentium computers. And uh, it had a modem. And I was able to get on like the early BBS, the bulletin board systems where you dialed into somebody's computer. And then this internet thing came out. And I got on that and started exploring around. And most of what was on, it was so interesting because it was just fringe shit. There was no like mainstream ideas at all on the internet, at all. I mean, there was no, I thought that you would put mainstream news on the internet or anything like this is pre-Wikipedia, this is pre-Google. Um, you know, I think Yahoo was still on like a EDU address. It was still kind of a little experiment. And most of the stuff that was out there was basically just the things that were interesting, fringe ideas that were interesting to the outsiders who were played around with this, most of them who were at university. And so, you know, everything from a lot of new age stuff, a lot of magic type of stuff, you know, that's when I ran across the Anarchist Cookbook, um, a lot of hacking stuff. So I got started to get into hacking and freaking uh, which is phone hacking because it had still the old phone system was around at that time. Um, and I started building these little boxes and I started doing a little bit of programming and, and, and pirating software and these sorts of things. And so um, it was that combination. You could probably, as you say, formative. <laughs> if you sort of look at who I am and you look at my life now, <laughs> uh, you could probably see the combination of that period in my life is what played a major role in, in forming the rest of my life was probably that 15, 16, 17. That chunk right there was like, it was my girlfriend and sort of sexual exploration, drug and sort of shamanic exploration combined <laughs> with electronic music, which then I went on to be a DJ and everything like that and producer. Um, and then the, the the hacker culture as well. So you'd sort of take all of those things together and that's that's me. That's what I would get. <laughs> yeah, see this see I knew this would be productive. Like it's already clicking. I can see it. It's like you were given the uh the internet at an early age, you were back in the, the heyday. Like I don't know, the early internet was wild, like just silly anecdote. But I remember at one point we got a virus that like uh back in the early days of the on our like on our desktop, like way back in the day and uh and it was probably my brother on porn or some shit, but, but he, uh, 
it was like it was something stupid like no matter what we typed it would be like i eat undershorts and it, or it's like something stupid so it's like someone took the time to make a virus like that just the early early internet was just ridiculous absolutely absolutely <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite it was quite the it was quite the thing and very different than what it is now, which is one reason why I think my experience with that has really informed sort of my understanding of where Bitcoin is going to go and uh, how it isn't going to look anything like what it looks like now. And so generations, I mean, look, I was 15 years old at the time, right? So that's 25 years ago. Um, Bitcoin's been around for 10 years. I mean, the internet had already been around in a, a, a nascent form for probably five years before I got on it. Um, and at least in the form that I got on it, right? I mean, it had existed since the 60s in one form or another. But, you know, we're, we're 11 years into Bitcoin. So I'm like, okay, you know, what it looks like 20 years, whatever it looks like now is what the internet looked like when I first got on it. What it looks like 20 years from now is going to be so far beyond even what I mean, we're having this conversation over the internet right now, mm -hmm. and people are watching it or listening to it in that way. So what we see and understand, it's all pervasive, right? If you, if you were without most people, if you're without access to the internet, you know, if somebody was like, yep, it's the next week, you, can't, you will have no access to the internet. I don't think most people understand how, how deep it pervades into their life and how little they'd be able to do, because it's like, no, you can't access the internet at all in any form. Like, well, you can't go to an ATM and pull out money. You can't deal with your bank. You can't uh, go purchase something with a card. You can't make a phone call. You can't like all of that is through the internet. Yeah. So it's all using it's all using internet protocols. So it's like you'd be SOL, buddy. Um, yeah, it's nuts to think what we're doing now. Like I remember twelve year old me, I would sit there like trying to look at porn, and it would be like a picture coming down like this. You yeah, know. I <laughs> And it's, I remember those days, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. now here we are. You're on. Um, you're what, like, sixteen hour difference, and we're talking with very little lag. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's uh, so. So that's you know. I think it gives. It was. It's been great to give a sense of perspective of how much things change. And you know, like I look at my daughters. They'll. You know, I have a five year old and a one year old. They'll never know a world where it's not this instant you know i mean from the time they were born they've been able to talk with grandma in russia and uh you know grandma in california instantly um you know face to face and they'll never they'll never know a time when that's not the case so yeah. it's 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 pretty amazing i think for, for those of us who have gone through and understand that that once wasn't there but it's also good perspective to understand that there are technologies around today. You know, I think Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is a prime example that are going to be just as amazing and um, you know, and astonishing and change the world as much as as the internet did. Yeah, it's funny, wasn't it Krugman? I think that said that the uh, internet was going to have about as much effect as the the fax machine or something or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but uh, yeah. So like, it's kind of yeah, it is really reminiscent of what Bitcoin is, and it's. It's almost like exponential, you know, with each new development. I don't know. It's it's kind of crazy, especially I'm only 29, and it's uh, in my lifetime how much the internet has changed has been ridiculous. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's all been in your lifetime, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's so. That's like you're you're. I guess you're that first 
uh, first generation that got to deal with it as as children, right? So mm -hmm. you, the internet existed and broadband came around when you were still fundamentally, you know, a minor. So mm -hmm. that's yeah, that's a very interesting generation. And I think you know it's your generation that's really affecting the massive is is the driving force be behind the massive massive change that's going on in the world. It's you know it's that sort of cohort that's somewhere between let's say 28 and 35 seems to be the the real cultural force behind everything that's happening. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, all right, let's move on to your early adulthood. For me, that's kind of where I rectified my, you know, my earlier pursuit of mental strength to my physical strength in my adolescence and where I kind of just learned to like not be ashamed of being different than other ones, other people, you know, not wanting to just be one of the herd and just shine out with just silly, you know, superficial physical traits. And uh, yeah, I just, is there, let's, let's hop into your early adulthood. You know, you're like 18 to 25 ish. I'm sure a lot of shit happened there. <laughs> a lot yeah. of shit. So, so for me, I would say that that period was really like my entrepreneurial period. I was, I was really heavily focused on, um, on entertainment, like on, on music. Like I had been, so I, I went to college at Howard university. And at the time that I was there, uh, in the in the mid to late 90s, it, Washington D.C. again back to Washington D.C. right. So Washington D.C. was it was really the best and most popping uh, electronic music scene in America. There were the the biggest club was their Buzz, which then became known as Nation. This was kind of the the country's first true like super club, like giant, you know, five to six thousand people. Uh, at a big show. And then there was, you know, like 18th Street Lounge and some of these other very, very iconic and legendary world-renowned clubs that were just there and available. And it's a city full of college students and it's very international. So it was to be expected that that, that would be one of the cities. I mean, New York was also was also popping, but New York had its own existing sort of music scene and, and vibe and energy with garage music and, and a lot of those things. So um, DC was different. DC was, was pushing forward that, that new kind of rave culture. And I got very heavily involved in that scene. And that was the, really the click that I, that I hung out with and, and what we were into was like, you know, the underground hip hop scene and the rave scene, which really were kind of meld, they were they were figuring out a way to meld with one another. Uh, and then uh, after college, I came back to LA and it was like, I moved and the locus of the rave scene moved. And LA became the location in the world where, uh, you know, electronic music was happening, just gigantic festivals. Um, and it just so happened that the town that I was from, San Bernardino, California, had a venue called the National Orange Show that hosted so, that was basically the host of like the biggest events. And then, uh, you know, the Inland Empire, where I was from, within 30 minutes of me was, you know, there were two to three big raves every single weekend and the, the, the biggest acts and great records. I mean, LA's record stores at that time was unbelievable. The DJ culture, the DJ culture in LA was already unbelievable uh, because of hip hop, but uh, you know, it just was even more so. And so my twenties was, you know, DJing, promoting events. Um, I built a, uh, so I, I 
moved to LA to really pursue that. And, um, you know, between DJing, promoting, and uh, my, my real love and my real interest was radio. And it had been an interest of mine since I, since I was in college. I had always been a radio head. We had had great radio. LA's got great radio stations. It's a, it's a great radio market. And at, that was the heyday. So that 90s, late 90s, early 2000s was really the heyday of Radio Man. That was, that was before you could get any internet on your phone. And so if you were in the car, it was either, and, and nobody had really their iPods attached. So you were either a stack of CDs, you could listen to the same CDs over and over and over again, or you could listen to the radio. And the radio was just so good, especially like the late night mix shows and whatnot. So I was very interested in that. And I was part of, in 1998, um, I was part of one of the earliest internet radio stations called DJ Union. And we had a little startup. It was part of that tech boom and bust. And so I got kind of my chops with that and was able to become associated with a lot of electronic music DJs in LA. And then I spun that out and started doing my own. And in uh, in 2000, when was that? So, well, no, I, I, so in 2002, I guess it would have been 2002, a buddy of mine and I decided that we were going to start a pirate radio station in LA. So a pirate FM station. And we, uh, we had some connects. I had been throwing a party, a Sunday night event a nightclub, I should say, in the 360 building on Hollywood and Vine Street. There's the tallest building in Hollywood. They had a club called the 360 in the top. And at the time, I was spinning uh, DJing UK garage music. And so we had a club club night every Sunday called Pole that was there. And then after 9-11 happened, basically nobody wanted to come into that penthouse club anymore. People were scared. People don't remember what that time was like. Uh, but I was, you know, I think I was 21, 22 at the time. And um, no, I guess I was probably 23. Huh? So, yeah, I was 23 at the time. And that club had just started to pick up for us. Like it was it was just going well that it was profitable. And then, you know, it just sort of fell off. And not long after that, there was some big explosion in, of a transformer in the basement and they shut that building down. But I still had the connect with the maintenance guy who was the only one who had the keys, uh, the super supervisor, I guess you could say. It was him and the fire marshal were the only ones that had the keys. And so I, you know, I paid him. He was out of, kind of out of work in a way. Um, he was looking after that building, but I don't know if he was being paid his full salary or whatnot. And uh, he let me and my girlfriend and my business partner into the building. It's an 18-story building. We climbed up the steps in the dark. There was no electricity carrying a marine cell battery, our transmitter and antenna, and two solar panels up to the roof. And we basically set it, set it up on the roof, um, running on solar. I had built a solar rig for it, timed out and everything, running on solar, and uh, popped it up on 87.9 FM. And I, was, uh, I built a little internet radio station to go along as sort of a fig leaf. And uh, we had a microwave link. I could actually see from my house. I could see that building. So we shot it up there. So for about a year, we were running on top of that. And uh, that was actually a really cool period because 
basically what we did is we went into LA's kind of underground and we were able to get like all of these legends, these legendary DJs. So like Juan Atkins was our, our uh, evening drive time DJ. He had an evening drive time show. Juan Atkins is the guy who invented techno. The word te in Detroit in the 80s. The word techno is actually after his song Techno City. Um, so he was like this old, you know, older black Detroit, you know, awesome, just an awesome, soulful guy. And his story, you know, so so I got to sit around with him and then like um uh you know, like uh two Chicago guys, Scott K and Roy Davis Jr., we would go from their club and I was using the internet to broadcast live from all of these clubs and, um, you know, just meeting these legendary characters and have them in the station. We eventually moved it to another location on top of a, a hill. And then we were hitting all of LA County and it became kind of this cult thing that people were into. And um, it would, it just, it just fulfilled this dream. And I think also when I look at um, agorism, I certainly wouldn't have known what it was called at the time, but in terms of like living the principles and, and getting like a firsthand, it's funny because when I told, I had a roommate at the time, I was living in West Hollywood and I had a roommate at the time, also kind of involved in the electronic music scene. And I told him, hey, we're gonna do a pirate radio station like they do in London. So they've been doing this in London for decades, throwing it on top of these tower blocks and, and uh, he said, you're going to get shut down in a day. The FCC is going to come. They're going to come and shut you down. I said, I don't know, man. I don't think so. Like, this frequency is open. No one's on it. And we're not bleeding over on anything. Like, how are they going to get up in that building? Are they going to have a helicopter? Like, you know, so, so I saw firsthand that, like, there is an assumption that the government is way more powerful and capable than it actually is. And that it cares a lot more than it actually does. And so this thing was up, God, I think it was up maybe two and a half, three years, every night on the air, 87.9 in LA. Now, mind you, this is the number two radio market in America at the time. Um, the stations that are up are, are, are billion dollar operations. I mean, these are gigantic and we're on the air alongside them and we're playing music that no one else is playing. And I mean, to hear electronic music now, to hear house music, everything, all the pop music is now all electronic music now. But you got to think at the time, this is early 2000s, certainly wasn't that. Hip hop ruled the roost. Nobody knew anything about house music. Nobody, a, a four to the floor, like, doots, 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 doots. <laughs> that, was, that was way outlier weird shit. You know, now that's just pop music. And so, uh, but that's what was on. That's what we were doing every night. And um, it was, honestly, it wasn't the government that took us down. Uh, we, we had ended up uh, kind of just breaking into, I guess you could say, it was wide open. There was, there are uh, towers all over the Hollywood Hills and um, tower facilities where they have antenna, antenna farms, I guess people call them. And there was one that um, kind of an associate told us about that was above, he lived in Hollywood Hills. He's like, there's one above my house. You should go walk up there and see. I, the gate's always open. And uh, sure enough, walked up, there was a gate that was open and there was even a little empty house, a uh, little shack covered with electrical and with a little empty antenna stand. 
And I was like, well, I guess this is just made for us, right? And so, um, you know, we just went up there, we installed it, and it just sat there and ran. Nobody came up there and looked at it, it just sat there and ran for like a year, maybe a year and a half. Uh, and then eventually, I think that company got sold. And as they were starting to put in new, um, maybe it was they were starting with the 3G at the time, really putting it out there. They, they came and they went and I guess somebody rented that little piece. And when they came in, they just took our gear and then it was gone. And that was it. But it was never the government. You know, no. it, it was it was never the FCC. Uh, and there was never any any issues. We ended up getting press about it in the whole nine. But I, I would say that, you know, that was really it, it was it was that. And then, you know, transitioning because of that sort of into uh Start, starting to play beach volleyball, that was a big part. But I would say that that was really kind of like my late 20s going into my 30s. And then that was that was the period that when sort of the the brand as it is now sort of came into being, I would say. All right, cool. Well, we, we just hit 25 to 35. Wait, wait, wait no, that was uh, yeah, it's 25 to 35-ish. So let's uh, do 35-42, where you're at now. Or maybe I skipped a time period. Yeah, I was, no, I was going I, – I, I went up to about 25. So I yeah. would say – that sort of adventure, that adventure with the pirate radio stuff uh, and the, the, the crux of my sort of DJing um, and, and promotion was sort of up to about 25, 26, I would say. Um, and, then, and, and then I started into my really heavy into my um, software, software career from there, sort of as a jumping off point from there, yeah. Yeah, 2535 is like where I'm at right now. This is for me. This is a spot where I've kind of settled into who I, as a father, uh, you know, husband. I mean, I, I did that earlier. I'm actually, I'm, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, both girls. So, you know, I'm, out, I'm outnumbered in here. So um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird feeling, but I mean, it's, I mostly just keep to myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're in, you're in for a treat as I get older. I mean, mine's already in that prepubescent and it's getting, get, starting to get interesting and I'm not, it's a little rough. <laughs> But yeah, but yeah, that's where I've started settling as a father. Kind of, I know I've gone more down the agorist route. I know, kind of seems like the the more the more I go down these intellectual routes, the more rabbit holes I go. Because like I just kind of did, I just I'm basically finishing up Sterner now. I'm kind of just going in different. I don't know. It's almost like you take. It's like a, when you play like an RPG and you kind of go down different skill trees. You know, it's kind of same thing with into, like different intellectual pursuits. So and it's not necessarily that I'm like I'm an egoist now. It's like man, I'm just looking into it. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's hit that 25 to 35. See where you're at, and then after that, we'll obviously do 35 to 42, where you're at now. <laughs> well, my so that period is when. Um, I would say that was when my professional, you know, I had been a tech entrepreneur, so I had been involved in technology, but I always was like, my primary focus was on entertainment. And so there was kind of this crossover where I had this technical skill. So like, for instance, I was able to build internet radio stations. I was able to build servers and um, I was able to do all of these things for myself. Uh, but I, I had never pursued a, um, so I had the skills and was self-taught in that regard and was competent enough to build businesses, but I had never really, you know, what, what, what people would say a developer career per se, or a, 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 a tech 
a career in tech. You know, I'd never gone and sat in on an interview, right? Uh, and had somebody be like, okay, tell me about this and whatnot and hire me and give me a salary or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I had been, I had been out there hustling and I was, I was happy with that for, you know, in my early twenties, what did I need? I didn't need a lot. Um, and it was relatively inexpensive to do the things that I was doing. And I was able to find investors to invest if I wanted to throw a, a larger event or whatnot. And, um, then it, I guess it basically sparked off of it. I mean, the, the, the sort of first domino in the line was actually when I was broadcasting from uh, one of the clubs I was broadcasting. Uh, so we would broadcast live, which is crazy. Um, we would broadcast live from clubs about four nights a week. I would actually just go out to the club with my laptop and I was chaining these internet radio stations with only one listener using open source software, sort of ch chaining them along to be able to broadcast. And then it would broadcast from the internet up through a satellite link, a, a microwave link, and it would broadcast onto the air. And so one night I'm at, um, I'm broadcasting from this club called GABA that was on Melrose, kind of a legendary club. And it was a, a, a night called PATH and it was uh, Roy Davis Jr he was the resident along with Scott Case. So two legendary um, house Chicago house music people who are house music fans uh, who, uh, who know the history will know that these are two legendary guys. And I'm just, I'm sitting there manning the laptop. You know, it was nice for me because I got to go out every night. I was in the club for free. I'd have a couple of drinks. I'm a little bit antisocial. Anyway, I don't like crowds. You know, I love to dance, but I don't really like crowds. And so I always had the opportunity to like have an excuse of like, okay, I'm going to go back and check on the stream and, and, and whatnot. And, and so uh, I'm there and this guy walks up to me and he's just like, Hey, uh, because just Scott K had said, yeah, all those people out there listening on 87.9 FM, you know, he grabbed the mic. Here we are at path. Come on down to Gabba on Melrose. It's $5 to get in all night or whatever he said. Right. And um, the, the, this guy walks up to me and he goes, Hey, uh, I just went out to my car after Scott said that, and I listened to 87.9. You're broadcasting on the radio right now from here. I was like, yeah. He said, um, he handed me his card. He said, my name is Nate, Nathan Scott. I'm the operations director for KPFK 90.7 FM, which is Pacifica. It's like, a, it's an anti-war. It was established as an anti-war network, Pacifica network. It's a, um, Scott Horton. Oh, His oh, yeah. on Pacifica is on that channel, actually, mm -hmm. 97 KPFK. So this is, I don't know, 2003. And the operations director hands me his card and says, listen, um, we've I've been trying to figure out how to get us live broadcast for a long time. How are you doing this? And I said, oh, I developed out the system. And he's like, could you do that for us? Could, could, could we, could we hire you? Could you do this for us? Like, where could you broadcast live from? I was like, well, I could broadcast live from anywhere that's got a, that I can jack in the audio and that's got a, a, a Wi-Fi signal. I mean, I could broadcast live if you get me a Starbucks Wi-Fi signal. And he's like, bet, call me tomorrow. And so I called him. He said, come down to the station. I came down to the station and he was like, look, man, um, we've got all these anti-war protests that are going on. And we've got all these celebrities and stuff who are coming out, you know, Martin Sheen, Gore Vidal. We've got all these bands who are coming. We're setting these whole things up. I've been having to run ISBN lines, you know, down the street. Can you, could you organize this? And so 
that began a, oh God, how long was KPFK my client? I mean, probably eight years or so that they were my client uh, where I was doing, and in that time I did live broadcast. So I, I produced and engineered the stream of the live broadcast of all of the anti big anti-war protests that were going on at that time that are you can still get in the KPFK archives. Um, many, many different live shows. Uh, at, at one point in time, I was actually managing all of their internet streams, so I rebuilt all of their, their stuff. And then from there, I started to um, build out more stations and get more. I mean, I, I, I built the radio station for Cal State, California State University, Dominguez Hills off of that. And like all of, I had all these clients coming in. And uh, in the in the vein of doing that, I I built out some other radio stations, internet radio stations myself. One of which became very very popular. That was a Latin station, um, and it was one of the first internet radio stations when this uh, musical style out of Puerto Rico called reggaeton became very popular. It's like a Spanish reggae. So you, you may you may know yeah. it, right? So it's like. <laughs> At, there was a period of time when it was hyper popular and we were the most popular um, way of getting it. So it, it was it was kind of this first international music of a group of people who were consuming, the kids were consuming on the internet for kind of the first time. Um, and, and this was still before they could get it on their phones, but like, you know, these kids in high schools would be, oh, we're listening on our computer as we're working at school or whatever or at home. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, I... I ended up, it ended up becoming very popular. I was reached out to by uh, a gentleman who is a major kind of super music producer who was running a company, publicly traded company as a CEO at the time, and offered to buy that company from me. Um, and so we arranged a deal, stock and cash, and, and then a salary. And within the that, we started working on these other projects. And so that was when I was really it really went to more, we had other staff managing the radio stuff and I was just doing software, building out these ad uh, serving platforms and things like that to see how we could monetize the things that we were doing. Um, and that was when I, you know, I'm listed as an inventor on uh, a patent associated with some of the stuff that I was doing there. Um, and I learned a lot of business. I started a, a record label together. He taught me a lot of business. I learned how to read, how to read a contract. I learned how to negotiate a contract. Um, and uh, was was like really kind of, I'd had some other business mentors, but this is really like my first real, real, real deal business mentor. And um, you know, it, it was it was from there that I then uh, developed some things on my my own. Told him I'm basically going to strike out and go on my own. Those things didn't pan out the way that I thought. And then I was like, well, I, I'm a professional software developer. Let me see if what's out there. And that then began my development career. That was from then on out. That was basically, so this is basically from about 25 to 30. Uh, and, and maybe it was like uh, 27 or so that I started working at startups as a salaried software developer. And I kind of came in as a senior developer because I built out all of these systems and whatnot. And, um, you know, my business partner who had been involved with me sort of came along and we kind of traveled almost as a package, it seemed, that as we would move from startup to startup uh, as, as these sort of early stage uh, employees, we would kind of go together, me doing back end stuff, him doing front end stuff. 
And um, it was also at that time that I started to get into the pickup artist scene and ran across the guys who were involved in that and a particular clique called Santa Monica Lounge. At the time, that, that was growing. Neil Strauss's book, The Game, had really sort of touched off a movement in LA and there were all these little communities, they called them layers, these communities of guys who were sort of exploring this pickup artist art. And this was a really nicely organized, well-established, great group of guys, um, probably active, maybe about 60 to 70 guys who were active, maybe hardcore two dozen. Uh, it was invite only, private bulletin board, and uh, gave me a chance to write a lot about the you know the things that I was doing in my my first book, Dow of the Gigolo. One chapter is actually it's it's a, a straight rip of one of my posts there. So that was when I started to be able to get into really my chops on thinking, you know, communicating. This what a great community of really just you know thinking about things, talking about things, and then going out in the field. And it was in that that I became very well known for being very good uh, at the pickup artist game. And particularly, I became known for uh, stripper game, being able to go into, it's one of those things where people are like, this is like magic. Every time this guy goes into a strip club, he's either getting a chick's number or she's like, let me go get my stuff and leave with you and we'll just go. Right? People were like, this is not supposed to happen. And I'd spend like, I'd, I'd buy myself a drink and tip like $4 on stage and then take a stripper home. And so there were literally like guys like coming into town um, who were interested in, in hey, hey, can you take us out and, and whatnot? And it was on one of those adventures that I met kind of a woman that I ended up dating for a long time who, uh, uh, like, I was dating a lot of women. I had multiple girlfriends. But um, she was probably one of the most interesting and impactful. Uh, and she, turns out, uh, was, is, we haven't spoken in a while, but was a high-end escort. And I thought that was very interesting. Obviously, it, it was I, I was exploring things at the time. And it, it ended up being her who introduced me to my agent. And so who, who the show is about and everything. And so I think, how old was I? I guess I was 30 when I met him. So, um, so yeah, that, that was uh, kind of a fateful meeting. I, I literally left, uh, was like, I'm going to go get some lunch from my software gig, went to Beverly Hills and met him. And he was like, hey, man, you want to, you know, I have this agency, Straight Male Escorts. Would you, are you interested in, you know, having attractive, successful, wealthy women take you out on dates? And I was like, and pay you. And I was like, oh, of course, right? So, but I had never done any kind of like modeling or anything like that. A lot of it's about pictures and all that. So he hooked me up with this photographer. It was kind of just really, we just vibe. Uh, we're still friends to this day, uh, Garen James and I. And um, he was another very impactful individual in my life and, and, a, and a great mentor. And, um, you know, that's kind of the rest is history after that. I, I, I was doing software and then on the side was doing this thing, but I recently went and I looked back at the first email that I kind of had with him. And uh, I, I had said, yeah, you know, I'm a software developer, but I'm kind of looking to transition out of that. So it kind of told me where my head was at at the time. I didn't quite remember that, but I, I guess it was 
you know, I, I'm somebody who I constantly want to be challenged and I constantly want to learn. I want to be on the cutting edge of whatever I'm doing. And I guess software at the time wasn't that. I saw myself going in the same sort of circles. The things that were wanted from my the people I was working for, the money was good. Uh, the job security was good, but uh, I wanted to be challenged. And so, you know, he reached out to me, I think maybe about six or seven months after I had started working for him and just had a few little appointments on side here and there. And he would, he had told me when we first met that there was a show and, uh, you know, he called me and he was like, uh, Vin, you're on, he left a message saying, Vin, you're on the show. Don't say no. And <laughs> two weeks later, I was in Vegas filming the first season of the show Gigolos. And, and so that, that was, um, 2010 that that was filmed. And that went until, like I said, 20, 2016 but I was in Vegas until 2018 so you know I mean I was I was there and involved in that for you know better part of a decade and that was definitely a that was definitely a side you know it was a side quest let's just put it like that <laughs> a, very, a very important one where I, I who I became somebody very different than I was when I first sort of went into that experience and I, I think I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that I took that detour before, um, you know, doing the doing what I'm doing now, which I'm very happy with. But I don't think that had I not done that detour, kind of gotten a lot of things out of my system and settled a lot of things, both with myself and with others, you know, things with my parents, uh, things that I still held against them and whatnot, really gotten a chance to, to grow as a man, explore a lot of things, explore a lot of things in terms of my own uh, spirituality as well. And, and that's really what that that's really what that adventure was about. And, um, you know, yeah, that's I, 20 from 2016. So, so 2016 puts me at, at what? 30. <laughs> the, uh, You're almost there. Yeah, 30. <laughs> I mean, whatever we can go straight to now. It's whatever. We don't have to get yeah, too, I mean, that, too, that, too now, particular. You know, now, now my life is now my life is dominated by, uh, my family mm-hmm. and, uh, my explorations now is trying to contribute to that which is coming in the future. So I've been predicting for years, really. I mean, I did a, a series on YouTube. People can go check it out called The Ascendant Project back in 2016. So, you know, four years ago, you know, summer of 2016. And it was about it was about the fact that I was saying there is a shift coming. Uh, everything of my psychological and spiritual experience and the things that I've learned. And, you know, I go into sort of the systems that I learned and whatnot. All of those say that there is a, a shift that is eminent, that is going to be paradigm shifting and earth shattering, not a change, but a transformation that like when this shift happens, our species will not be the same. So it's like the movement into a new age, you know, something like, moving from the dark ages to the Renaissance or the Renaissance to the enlightenment or the, let's say the enlightenment to the communications age or whatever the hell it is that we're in now. I said, something is coming. I don't know what exactly what it will look like, but the, the, the landscape of it is X and uh, you know, basically this is it. So this is something that I had been preparing for. This is something that I had known was coming actually for a long time since I discovered you know, things from uh, an early spiritual mentor of mine. Um, but I, it, it was never on the horizon because I couldn't see kind of the pieces that would 
do it. You know, it's like, oh, where is it? And then, you know, I think Trump and the things that happened in the lead up to that election, uh, and I was part of it. I was doing a podcast at the time that, you know, and things we were doing, things that were getting censored. We were being put on fake news lists. And there was this feeling of this could go bad. Right? This could turn bad. And then the continued deplatforming and the tribalism and the fracturing of the, 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 the culture and the society, um, you know, that, that informed me. And, and um, in, in April, you know, I, I moved here. But what I had said I'm going to be a part of is this is we're in a long term. This is long now. Like we're at the beginning of an age. And the best that somebody like me can do is not to turn anything around. Nothing's going to turn around. Um, this is the way that it goes. So it's to be able to start the, for all the terrible things that we see, it's to be able to find those things that are in line with the principles that I understand that are positive and to be able to start down a path and follow, you know, and, and, and follow the, the righteous path. And so for me, that's been, um, you know, working on this next book, it's been communicating the things that I have about uh, about what's coming. It's been exploring my own spirituality much more, and it's been it's been working on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and it's been trying to spread the message of of agorism, um, because as the you know the state is becoming clearly pathological. I think people can see that that um, you know there are some people. It's been pathological, but I think especially in the West, we have been lulled into a false sense of security about what the state is because um, particularly, I mean, the brilliance of the founding fathers of the United States who, uh, who set down this system that is like, we know it's going to get, I mean, if you look at everything from the Declaration of Independence to the, the Bill of Rights to the Constitution itself, written right into the heart of it is the idea that we know this will become corrupt eventually mm -hmm. all systems become corrupt they all cycle <laughs> yeah, they they knew that they they knew it but they were like but we're gonna drop in a system that can last longer than others without becoming corrupt you know without becoming tyrannical and tyrannical systems can last for a long time, but free systems have never lasted for very long. Uh, but the, the, the inability to stop a tyrant from rising, um, I mean, even Plato wrote about this in the Republic, right? That it's just like a, a tyrant. He said that, uh, that uh, this and no other is the root from which a tyrant springs when first he appears above ground, he is a protector. So he says, anytime there's a crisis in society, um, the people look for a protector. And they nurture that protector. And he's like, the tyrant is always that person. It's not to say that every protector that they nurture becomes a tyrant, but he's saying that every tyrant came as a protector and that there are enough crises. And he's writing this at 400 BC, right? There are enough crises in society that you constantly are in need of protectors. And you're rolling the dice for a tyrant every single time you do that. 
I mean, even with America, fucking the whiskey rebellion. I mean, it, it wasn't even long. <laughs> I mean, you can argue that maybe on a on a scale that we were more free, but it didn't take too long before they went a little bit tyrannical. I mean, if you say it's just a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, well, I mean, there's. I think this is a and again, like this is the part of the false sense of security that we have, and it's a real blind spot of libertarians. And I have this conversation all the time. Um, that, you know, we, we think about the trappings of tyranny. Oh, they're going to take, they're going to take our guns. They're going to take, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about that. Well, they're going to take our guns. I was like, listen, listen, um, listen, man. <laughs> like when you're really in tyranny, like that shit really doesn't matter. When you're really in tyranny, the, the, because the people who have overthrown colonization by tyrants, didn't have guns when they decided that they were going to start the revolution. The Viet Cong, the IRA, Fidel Castro's group of Cuban academics, they didn't have the guns. They had the will, even Mao, right? When Mao had the people rise up, they didn't have the guns at the time. They didn't have any guns. And it's like the revolutionary doesn't matter with the guns. And if you don't have the revolutionary will, to really do it, to really risk your life and die. It doesn't matter how many guns I give you. There's no will here right now. There's none. Well, yeah. and the, the reason why there's no will is because there's been this amongst the, the and, and it's, it's just LARPing. It's a lot yeah. of LARPing. Uh, so like, that's what I, that's what I have seen in the, the Liberty community, unfortunately, is that it's like, there's a lot of intellectual uh, masturbation and there's a lot of LARPing. Mm. And so that's what we've seen. As the tyranny has really happened, it's been like, oh, that's unconstitutional. It's a well, it's not stopping. <laughs> yeah. It's constitution stopping. Oh, and then somebody told me, oh, well, yeah, the governor of Michigan, yeah, like the court struck down one of her orders. And I was like, she just did another one. Yeah. It's like, she cool. She did another one. It's a losing battle. It's just. <laughs> the damage was already done. Mm. By the time they struck it down, the da she'd done the damage. So the system that we have is not stopping it. No. And the guns that we have is not stopping it. At best, it's slowing it. At best. <laughs> it's not even... It's not even yeah, at best, though. Slowing? Slowing? It's been eight months. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm just saying, at best, the best yeah. way you can look at it is maybe it slows it. That's the only... But even then, I don't agree. I don't I, think I, that. Yeah, I think the empirical <laughs> evidence is that it's... It, it, not slowed at all yeah like if it's if it slowed it then it's like it if it has slowed it then the degree to which it can slow it is like moot because if all of this can happen in eight months then and and what it slowed it because it would have instead taken what four months mm -hmm. well the difference between four and eight months is like okay you get four months of quasi quasi tyranny as opposed to additional four months of all tyranny. But once the tyranny is here, it's here forever mm -hmm. until it's overthrown. I mean, yeah, that's the way the court systems work is once you have precedent, you have precedent. So, <laughs> and so, so, you know, that's, I, I think that that is really like, that's, that's an important, that's an important thing for us to realize is that we've been blessed to have this little period of a couple centuries that is, completely unprecedented in the history of humanity. And 
Unfortunately, in that time, uh, because it's been a couple of centuries, it has been forgotten how unprecedented it is. And therefore, uh, there are no natural defenses against tyranny uh, when it comes. And it always comes looking exactly like it looks right now. But we've, but we've forgotten that because uh, the assumption is that the system that we have is so strong that it can stop it. But it's been, uh, it, all systems corrupt. The founding fathers knew that it would eventually fall apart. And we just happen to be living in the time when it does. So, you know, um, that's been the axiom that I've been operating off of since March. And uh, my, my goal now is to just build the beginning stages of the, the you know, to, to hold on to, to be the remnant of that thing that will help future generations to get, to pull themselves out of this when they decide they've had enough. Mm -hmm. It's funny. It seems like the more of a free or smaller state you start out with, the worse it ends up becoming because you do end up lulling yourself into a false sense of security. And it also is like, look, look at what we are now. And it's, but yeah, not to not to get into weeds. I think this is probably a good space to stop. I mean, I'm having fun, but it's also we're at hour 15. <laughs> I'm having a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, uh, I think it's a good place to stop. I don't know if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs here, and uh, then I'll I'll go on. Yeah, no big plugs. I mean, um, I I I really think if people, it's a, just a great resource. Our our newsletter, Counter Markets. You can go get your first issue for free at countermarkets.com. Uh, we give a big discount. For people who subscribe using cryptocurrency and we take a whole bunch of different ones um, but i think the best part about being a subscriber is we have a private telegram group it's got hundreds of people in there and um, these are agorists from all over the world and it's it's really crazy that you can almost ask any question from crypto to self-sustaining uh agriculture to energy generation to three uh 3d printing whatever it is uh, philosophy and uh, an answer, a brilliant answer, and probably some links and videos and books to check out is going to come right back at you in the Telegram. So it's like uh, you get all of our back issues, which is about four years uh, worth of content and great authors every month. Every month is somewhere between 40 and 60 pages of content delivered right to your email. So I would say, if anything, that's I'm super proud of it. It's, it's a great resource. It never has it been such a good resource as when people are trying to figure out their ways through these lockdowns. Um, so countermarkets.com would be uh, would be where people can go. All right, awesome. Uh, I'll do my plugs real quick. We just got the Facebook group. This will all be in the description. We got a Facebook group. We're on MeWe now. We're on Library. We're on BitChute. Uh, uh, we got a, we're working on compiling an email list. So uh, and we also have an email at thelibertymovementglobal@gmail.com. We're trying to diversify as much as possible. So shoot us an email, or if you're in our MeWe or Facebook group, you know, hit us up with your email so we can compile an email list because we're looking to get like a site going soon, or maybe even a or newsletter. Um, yeah, um, with that, you know, also like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Like I hope this, like I said before, this was a setting the stage. This was a, I mean, I would like to have future discussions with Vin, you know, preferably on the discussion of, of magic, but, uh, cause that's kind of what I wanted to lead into. Cause it's like, that's kind of a, maybe I may not see as much of a shift in my thinking as the minarchist to anarchist jump or the, or the, uh, anarchist to agorist jump. But it definitely did make a shift in my thinking 
And, uh, but also in a weird way, it was almost like a kind of the agorist shift where a lot of people, you don't really become an agorist. You just realize you're an agorist. And for me, yeah. the magic thing was kind of like express a thought I'd already kind of had. So, uh, you just kind of hit it on the, na- the nail on the head there. And it's kind of was like, oh shit, that's what I've been trying to express. And, um, like, uh, yeah. So I, I think there's a, there, I mean, if you, if we don't even have a subsequent conversation, go check out other conversations. There's a lot of great conversations with Pete. Uh, Pete Quinones, um, I really think it's an important conversation to be had because uh, a lot of us libertarians are too much on the uh, zeros and ones. Like we accuse the, the 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 left and the right of being binary thinkers, but we're still operating on a single dimension where you kind of need to bring your thinking a little bit higher and, you know, operate on that magic level. So, uh, yeah, with that, it's been really awesome having you, Vin. Uh, yeah. Thanks. So, yeah. But uh, all right, that's it. Deuces. <laughs>